So, Mark. Yes. One of the things that I think is interesting about this week's movie is the way that it sometimes faints toward the idea of our two leads getting together in a romantic relationship, but doesn't actually go there. So I was wondering, do you have a favorite movie where the leads don't get together? As a true connoisseur of film, I obviously first thought of the film Casablanca. Probably the easiest and most pretentious answer to this question. Sure, but a good one. But a very good movie. Absolutely. She gets on the plane. She gets on the plane, and that's about it. But it would be a very different movie if she doesn't get on that plane. And I don't know for sure if it would be considered as much of a classic if she didn't. I don't think it would be as good, because the movie is about this relationship that has been doomed time and again. And we find it doomed again there in Casablanca. Yeah, this relationship just isn't meant to work out, because in a way, Rick's always been second to Laszlo. Right. Another great example, back in July, we talked about broadcast news, where Holly Hunter does not end up with either William Hurt or Albert Brooks. Yes, of course, we talked about that movie back in July, and it is currently August. It's the end of August. It's the end of August. That is another fantastic movie. One that I hold near and dear to my heart. It's great. I also recently watched Michael Mann's Heat, and in that one, Robert De Niro and Al Pacino do not get together, but they do hold hands at the end of the movie, which I like as an acknowledgement that maybe in another life it could have happened. I mean, we're obviously talking about movies specifically where the movie faints towards the two leads getting together, because there's a lot of movies, especially in the cop drama, where there are two leads that don't get together. Right, but they hold hands, and they're very intense. They go on a coffee date, and they're really interested in each other's lives. Uh Uh-huh. I think... I'm actually really surprised, Mark, that you did not choose from the list that we just looked at on Google, Brokeback Mountain... Because you are supposed to be the gay member of this. Do you not like that movie? I haven't seen it. Oh, he hasn't seen it. Does that make you not gay? Is that, are you officially not gay? Look, Hi, Mark I'm Nick was... and I'm gay. <laughs> and this is my podcast now. Mark was clearly Team Crash in 2006. <laughs> I think I've seen that movie and I think I didn't hate it at the time because I was dumb. Look, we're all going around in these little metal boxes and sometimes we just need to crash into each other to get a sense of each other's lives. I don't want to rewatch it because of how painful it would be, but I feel like I should rewatch it now that I know movies better to truly understand why it's awful. If you want to dig into Crash but don't want to actually watch the movie, there was a really great deep dive a couple years ago into the Oscars campaign for that movie, which is really fascinating to read. One of the big things that it did that they think helped it out was it was one of the first campaigns to leverage mailing DVDs to Academy voters. So more people had seen that one, which I think is a large part in why movies win. Absolutely, it's a factor. Going to 10 Best Picture nominees made it possible for much smaller things to get nominated, but it's hard to win if people haven't seen your movie. The interviews with Academy voters where they're just like, yeah, I just didn't watch that one. The anonymous ballots that THR does every year? Yeah. Those are horrifying. And horrifying. Because it's like, if you're in the Academy... Take the time to watch the movies. Don't be a dick about it. Also, isn't it like you've taken on the responsibility? Like, it's kind of your job to when, watch those movies. Yeah, when you are inducted into the Academy, I feel like the one responsibility you it's have... A, there's literally one job. ...is to watch the nominees and vote informatively. Mm-hmm. That's a word now. Yeah, it is now. 
I tend to agree with you. Last year, I didn't even bother to read those THR ballots because I knew they would infuriate me. And given the results of last year's at least best picture race, I think most of the other Oscars turned out okay. It's probably a good thing that I didn't read them. The few I read made me mad, and I can't imagine if I had gone more in-depth into it. Honestly, thank goodness for the paywall in that moment, so I didn't just go into a spiral reading every single one. Actually, Green Book, another movie where the leads don't get together. It's true, but one of my actual favorite movies that faints towards it, where they don't get together, is by the same director as this week's movie, which is Once. Oh yeah, that's a nice one. I love that movie. The music in that one is so good. We should watch it because you've only seen the stage version. Right? right. I've never seen the film. Yeah. It's definitely much calmer because it's a movie. The stage version, I really enjoyed when I saw it, but it definitely does add a lot more to it. The movie is just so beautiful and slow paced and the music is incredible. I listen to the soundtrack a lot. Yeah. I have not seen the film of once, but I do ride hard for Sing Street, which is John Carney's follow-up to this movie. And in that one, the leads do get together. In the most shocking twist of them all, if you've seen any of his other movies. It's really cute. Yes. They get on a little boat. I think now that we've moved on to John Carney, I've decided to try and start making segues my thing. Okay. Uh, Nick, do you want to start the episode for us? Sure. Um, uh, hi, everyone. Welcome to We Love the Love, a Hollywood romance podcast. I'm Nick, and I'm gay. And I'm Will, and I'm a ginger. As we said, Nick has now displaced Mark as our resident homosexual. This is a podcast where we delve deep into cinematic love stories I to answer the age-old question, does Hollywood romance, or in this case, Irish independent film, make any sense? And are these people actually dateable or even likable? It doesn't matter if the romance is a main plot or if it's a one-scene flirtation. Either way, we will dig in and we will see what is there. This week, Nick and I are joined by Mark, who used to be one of the hosts of this podcast, and I'm really excited about this. This movie was a listener suggestion, kind of pitched as a different kind of romance than we often look at, looking at romances that have been around for a long time, as opposed to the beginning of one. And it's kind of my shtick to have movies where it's kind of unconventional movie romances, what with my last one being Chicago, so definitely... Definitely a good addition. Also, it's one of the, like, first movies I bought on iTunes. Right, it is... Now defunct iTunes. Part of Nick's iTunes film library, yes. which dictates a decent <laughs> chunk of what we do here. We have covered the three movies he told me he owned. He has many more than that, but he said when we first started dating that he owned three I... movies. Easy A, Last Holiday, in Chicago, and add Begin Again to the mix, and now we've covered all of them. What's next? The Skin I Live In? Yeah, we've done Vertigo already. We've done Vertigo. We have to do a, The Skin I Live In. A horrifying romance. <laughs> All right. I don't know that one. <laughs> it's really good. It takes some of the premise of Vertigo and makes it more literal through the removing of skin. Sounds right. Yeah. By the way, Mark just mentioned it. The film we are covering this week is John Carney's New York musical Begin Again, starring Kira Knightley and Mark Ruffalo. Also, Catherine Keener. Also, was a fun Catherine surprise. Keener. She's I great. love her. You should watch Forever on Amazon because she's so good in it. I've heard good things. It also has Haley Steinfeld. It's a good, she's a good one. It's a really stacked supporting yeah, cast. Oh, James Corden is also in it. And of course, Adam Levine. But, uh, <laughs> and most deaf. That's and right. Deaf. And CeeLo Green? And, and CeeLo Green. <laughs> we could run an entire season of The Voice out of the cast of this movie. <laughs> oh my god. So this movie was John Carney's 
follow-up to once, at least in the United States. It's his second movie that got American distribution, his sixth overall. He had made a lot of very small movies before that. Once actually shot for $160,000. So the fact that Begin Again had an $8 million budget was a big step up for him. And that's how he's drawing in some of these much larger names, people like Mark Ruffalo, Kira Knightley. Adam Levine, kind of, he didn't take a salary for the movie, so he's not part of the budgeting. But definitely you're seeing the platform Carney is given elevated after the success of Once. I feel like $7 million of that $8 million must have gone to salary. Probably a decent chunk of it. With this cast versus how much of this movie is just shot in random scenes in new york right it's shot on location in mostly less famous neighborhoods of new york with handheld cameras you can tell that this is a director used to working with lower budgets and when they gave him more he was just like let's just hire more famous actors who are good actors because i think that's where he realizes most of his movies come from is performance i think that's true and this time he did also have judd apatow on board as a producer helping to bring those people in and after the movie premiered at the toronto film festival in 2013 it got bought up by the weinstein company who also helped with some of the advertising and distribution and did some other stuff i will say they were involved in one change that i think is good which is that they got the movie to change its name at toronto it was called can a song save your life oh god that's terrible they changed it in part because people who saw the movie kept forgetting what the title was yeah which is bad yeah still think they should have called it twice in sing street is thrice colon sing street or you could go the uh, the God's Not Dead route, so that this would be once two, or once twice, if you will. And then Sing Street could be once colon a light in the darkness. Is it called God's Still Not Dead? Because if they didn't use No, that it's as God's title, Not Dead 2. I feel like they missed out. I mean, that's probably the only flaw with those movies. There is a movie that I believe is actually called I Still Know What You Did Last Summer. There is. It's the sequel to I Know What You Did Last Summer. Which is the most blatant move and i respect them so much for actually doing it i like it a lot i like it when instead of attaching a two on there you play around with grammatical conventions big fan anyway yes we're talking about begin again i had not seen this movie before me neither nick's been trying to get me to watch it for a while so i'm glad i finally did i really like seeing kira knightley snaggletooth every chance that i can get so this was a really good opportunity to watch this movie again she wears some incredible outfit she looks great the costuming in this movie is excellent this is the best she's looked i think It's very well costume designed. I would agree with you there. Like everyone has great distinct looks going on that aren't drawing a lot of attention to themselves, but are awesome and reflect character well. They are clothes these people would wear in New York in this time, but elevated. It's worth noting when we're talking about Kira Knightley, she was not the first person attached for the role. Uh, John Carney talked about Adele for it for a while. Ah! (laughs) Imagine Adele's accent in this whole movie. He ultimately decided not to because he's like, well, she's actually a singer. So then the movie is kind of about Adele playing a version of herself. And I don't want to do that. But just imagine instead of every time Keira Knightley gives a little laugh, it's just Adele's cackle. That would be interesting. (laughs) It would be so good. Scarlett Johansson was also attached to the movie for a while. And that fell through. And they eventually cast Keira Knightley, who was not a singer, was not a guitar player, learned to do both. 
for the movie, by all accounts. Not amazingly on either, but well enough that the movie works, I think. Mm-hmm. Carney talked a lot about how the movie doesn't depend on her being the greatest musician ever. It depends on her having something to say. Yeah. And knowing how to say it. Right. Kira Knightley talked about taking the role in an interview with The Mirror, the UK news outlet. She said, I suddenly realized I had died in pretty much everything I had been in for the last five years. And I wanted to do something where I don't go through some sort of emotional turmoil or die. Good for her. Honestly, it must be so hard to, like, continuously go to work and have to, like, struggle through some... Feel the anguish! Like, so much of that. Some mortal disease or, you know, supernatural occurrence. And this isn't, like, the easiest role. I mean, there's still heartbreak in this movie, but it isn't, like, dire death tragedy. It's not you can only bang your husband every ten years on a beach. It's pretty small scale in terms of the tragedies they face. It's all stuff that, you know, her heartbreak and stuff is all things just a person would go through. Yeah. So I feel like compared to pirates, it's probably (laughs) fairly easy. So there's one other thing we have to talk about with Kira Knightley when we talk about this movie, and that is an interview that John Carney did in 2016 around the release of Sing Street. So... One of the things about this movie and Sing Street is that because they're pretty small independent movies, the people involved did a ton of interviews to try to get people to see them, mostly unsuccessfully on the part of this movie. And in 2016, when he was doing interviews around the release of Sing Street, John Carney had like made multiple comments that he would never work with a supermodel again, which is weird because Kira Knightley is, of course, not a supermodel and had been a professional actor since childhood. But he ultimately said in an interview with The Independent, Kira's thing is to hide who you are. And I don't think you can be an actor and do that. I don't want to rubbish Kira, but you know, it's hard being a film actor and it requires a certain level of honesty and self-analysis that I don't think she's ready for yet. And I certainly don't think she was ready for that on that film. And he, of course, got a ton of backlash from that. A lot of directors who had worked with Knightley sounded off on Twitter saying that this was absurd and that she's a hard worker and a very good actress, as every human knows. Carney later walked that back apologized saying that he was ashamed of himself and that in trying to pick holes in his own work he ended up blaming himself kira knightley said look we didn't get along great on set whatever he apologized that's fine thanks for calling me a supermodel (laughs) what does that mean he's like she did this thing where she was pretending to be someone else on set and it's just she was hiding who she really is and i found it off-putting You paid her to act, bud. That's the weirdest critique I've ever heard of an actor. They didn't seem to be fully expressing themselves as a person. It's like, no, they're there to be the character, and you bring yourself to the character, but you're still not being yourself. If I had to hazard a guess, I would say part of it probably is that in some interviews, Keira Knightley did talk about being uncomfortable with some of the improvisation that went on, and maybe he was trying to like talk about that being difficult at times, but what he said is way beyond that, and that is now very much part of the story of Begin Again. I hadn't heard that. That is so rude. It was a big deal when it happened. I think I remember this now. I think I remember hearing about Keira Knightley responding to someone saying, like, thanks for calling me a supermodel. Yeah, if you Google Kira Knightley, John Carney, this will be the top result and the second, third, fourth, fifth, and twelfth result. <laughs> Even if you actually click on the next page button on Google? It'll still be there. Like I said, the movie did not do super well. It cost $8 million, and it only made $16 million at the domestic box office. On the other hand, it did pretty well worldwide. It made $47 million, and for some reason, 
$25 million in South Korea. Why did the South Koreans love this movie? I don't know. Maybe they're really into Adam Levine. Maybe they're really into Mark Ruffalo. Maybe they just like the movie. I can see them really liking the song. And plus the New York thing, like New York through song. I feel like that could really translate to like international audiences really well. So maybe that's my guess. Yeah, I think that makes sense. Mark? Our guest? <laughs> I just think sometimes a movie gets buzz and that buzz builds on itself and it becomes a thing where a few influential people in South Korea may have seen it and reviewed it well and then that spread to other South Koreans and then South Korean media was blowing up. And then it makes and then all of a double sudden, what it made in the US. Everyone goes and sees it for some reason. Yeah, I mean, who's to say? Good for South Korea. This is a nice movie. So should we start getting into the weeds of it all? Let's do it. Thanks for segueing, Mark. Today, Mark picked out five points that he's going to walk us through about... The, the, there's kind of some complex romance things. As we said, the two leads don't get together, and there's kind of two romances going on. So Mark had a bit of a problem putting together these five points, but I think he did a really good job. So we're going to have him go, th- go through our first point. Disclaimer, the movie does not take place chronologically. Correct. But we will be going through the points of the romances chronologically. Okay, so, so we're going to be scrambling some things around. Yeah, so the... Hashtag scramble it up. The moment... <laughs> so the moment where they meet in the bar is actually going to be point two, even though that's what opens the movie. And by they, you mean Mark Ruffalo and Kira Knightley. Right, Greta and Dan. So point one is stuff that takes place kind of before the movie begins. Here comes the train upon the track And there goes the pain It cuts to black So before the movie, Dan is a successful music producer. He founds an independent record. And he's married to Catherine Keener, playing Miriam. And they have a daughter, who's played by Haley Steinfeld, But they are separated at the start of the movie because she has cheated on him. She's a music journalist. He was in the industry. Right. She was in Europe covering some band's tour. And she and a member of the band started an affair with each other. And they both decided to, as soon as they get back, tell their spouses that it was over and they were going to get together. But Catherine Keener did it as soon as Ruffalo (laughs) picked her up at the airport. But the other guy didn't, so then it was just an awkward situation. And eventually Ruffalo moved out. Right, and so it's unclear if they're fully divorced or just separated, but they are no longer together. I think it's implied they're just separated. They've only been split for a year. Yeah. He still wears a wedding ring. Okay, I didn't notice that. He also sleeps in, like, the worst apartment. He's got a fitted sheet that's not actually fitted onto the bed. (laughs) The bottoms of his feet are black it's so gross that was such a good touch i noticed that and i was very impressed because it really tells you everything you need to know about this man he is in a rough place when he goes to pick up his daughter from school one day she gets in the car and says what's that smell and he goes i spilled gasoline in the car it's not alcohol what year did this come out uh it was at tiff in 2013 in 2013 it released wide in 2014 i feel like i just Every time you see a character drink and drive in a movie, I guess even since then, it's a sign that they are a really bad guy. Uh, Ruffalo also litters. He throws bad CDs out the window. I didn't think about that as littering. But what if a pigeon tries to listen to that CD and is tortured by bad music? That would be so sad. Yeah, that's littering. That hurts the earth. (laughs) But 
watching a man drink alcohol before his 14 year old daughter gets in the car is something this is him having woken up to pick her up at the end of the school day oh yeah that should be something that's like irredeemable instead of just a fun little like oh this guy kind of thing so that really shook me at the beginning yeah i feel like it's a testament to how likable mark ruffalo is yep we instantly love him despite the fact that he's doing all these really terrible things it's also because the director's Irish, probably. <laughs> wow, stereotypes <laughs> yeah. much? <laughs> yeah, just wanted to get that jab in because I don't actually believe it, but I thought it would be a funny joke. Oh, yeah, so you're all about the ironic stereotypes, Mark? Sure. No, I just, I f- do feel like... After having gotten booted off your podcast for not <laughs> seeing Brokeback Mountain? Yep, so I do feel like other countries, except Singapore, might be... Drinking and driving is still something that the fight is harder than at least our part of the u.s have you ever seen a person drinking and driving in real life no there was one time when i was living in florida where i was driving to school and there was a guy next to me at a red light he was riding like a vespa on a major road not an interstate but like a major road and while he was riding this vespa he was texting on a phone that was plugged into an outlet between his legs on the vespa and in his other hand holding a can of miller light and it was the most Florida thing I saw when I lived there, and my classroom was literally next to a swamp. That's horrifying. It was wild. That man is probably dead now. I mean, maybe. He was pretty old, so he presumably managed to live that way for a while. <laughs> oh, God. Um, a story you haven't heard about me is that my freshman year of college, I rode in a car with someone who was drinking a Four loco. That's the story. Remember the societal panic about Four loco around the time this movie came out? Yeah. My parents, if they ever found out I got in the car with someone who'd been drinking, that is like the worst crime I could have done. I know, but I'm really, I'm all about emotional honesty, which is something you would know if you were a host of a podcast. (laughs) So. You should try it sometime. Yeah, you should really get on that. It's awesome. You know what else is a great quality in the host of a podcast? Hmm. Listening to podcasts. Anyway, Greta... Before the movie This is Greta starts. played by Kira Knightley. Greta played by Kira Knightley. Who is... has the most... I know I've seen her in movies before, but she has the most insane cheekbones on the planet. It looks like her face is hollow. She also has the thinnest body. Yes. It's disconcerting sometimes. She's like the stick bug from A Bug's Life. Yeah. Not a normal stick bug, specifically the one <laughs> from A Bug's Life. <laughs> that really sums up how you see the world, Will. Yeah. <laughs> That's specifically the world that Superman turns backwards in the film Superman. Doesn't The Flash also do that? I don't know. I haven't seen The Flash. Anyway. You know what, though? Superman rules. We should do it on this show. Lex Luthor's plan is the best supervillain plan of all time. Isn't he just doing the office space crime? Like, stealing fractions of pennies? No, he buys up a bunch of land in the interior of, like, Nevada, and his plan is to trigger the San Andreas Fault to sink California, and then all that worthless land he bought will suddenly be beachfront property, and it'll be worth a ton, and he can sell it at a profit. That is brilliant. It's an amazing plan! It's in Superman 3, where Richard Pryor's character is stealing fractions of pennies from banks, which they then do in the movie office space. Hey, it adds up. So, Keira Knightley. Yeah. As Greta, lives in the UK with her boyfriend, Dave, played by Adam Levine, and is best friends with James Corden, and they talk about all growing up in Bristol together, which raises some questions about Adam Levine's character, Dave. Maybe his dad is the 
American attache to Bristol. I guess. I assume there are Americans living in Bristol. But it is funny hearing Keir Knightley and James Corden reminiscing about their time growing up together in Bristol and Keir Knightley's longtime boyfriend, Dave. How they're all good chums. The way you said Dave made it sound like an absurd name for an English person to have. <laughs> I didn't mean it that way. My first name is David. I have no qualms with the name Dave. All right, so the three of them all grew up in England together and... As you said, Greta and Dave have been dating for some time. And he's like an up-and-coming musician, and they write songs together. He gets a song that he wrote in a movie, which is popular, and then a record label signs him and brings him to New York to record an album. And she comes with him. And she comes with him because she's a collaborator on many of his songs. Although, even as she arrives, she's already kind of frustrated with some of the aspects of his rise to fame She tells Corden at one point that I'm becoming Dave Cole's girlfriend as opposed to being part of a team. Which, my guess is, feels pretty bad. Yeah, it's no fun. So they're not getting along great as it's going on. Greta's getting increasingly frustrated with Dave as he gets more focused on his life in the U.S. And she feels like she doesn't have a lot to do. There's not room for her. You know what we have to talk about? The record producer. Yeah, Mim. Well, Mim, the beautiful Mim, but also the, the guy with the ponytail. The guy with the ponytail. Oh, the creepy ponytail. The guy with the creepy ponytail. Oh, right. Yeah, he's so creepy. Yeah, that the, dude is weird. That's really all I have to say about him other than that. There's a really weird creepy. producer in the meeting. He's super creepy. With Dave and Greta. Who refers to one of the people on the team as the beautiful Mim. Ugh. Foreshadowing for Dave cheats on Greta with Mim in L.A. Yeah, while he's in L.A. doing some records. And he comes back wearing the grossest slouch hat. I love that his facial hair gets worse as he becomes a worse person over time. And he admits what happens to Greta basically immediately and says, I still love you, but I have to see where this leads, which is the worst thing I've ever heard said. And this is a thing where I give Adam Levine some credit for being like superstar anchor of NBC's lineup and being willing to play just this douchebag in the movie. And a douchebag who seems a lot like Adam Levine. So playing kind of himself as the villain. It is an interesting choice. I don't know how much acting he's doing either, which doesn't help the... I mean, it's not like he's bad in the movie. No, but I feel like based off of seeing him as Adam Levine, it is interesting that he didn't try to differentiate himself from the character more. He actually talked in some interviews when the movie was coming out about how he thought some of Dave's attitudes as he became famous mirrored some things that he had struggled with. That kind of makes sense. But the whole I have to see where this leads thing is it's like horrifying. It's the worst because he almost is basically like, I need you to wait for me while I figure this out. And if it doesn't work out, we're coming back together, right? Which is what he tries to do. Yeah, that's the vibe he's like giving off in this moment is, as a man, I need to go and see if this works for me. But, you just wait here. But Greta instead leaves and goes to sleep on the couch of her friend James Corden. Which brings us to point number two. Am I right, Mark? Yeah. I just want to point out, when she goes to James Corden's house, his bed is a loft bed without a ladder, and he talks about how he has to, like, vault into it, but they never show him do it, and I was very upset, because it is very high, and James Corden or Keira Knightley could probably not vault into it. I like to think he has a springboard. So he has to run and jump on it like a little kid at a gymnastics class. Or like one of those really tiny little circular trampolines. Yeah. Like, yeah. It was really good. 
So anyway, Mark, yeah, you're our guest. Take us to two. point number two. Point two. I hate this so much. Uh, point two, Greta goes to an open mic night. Because Corden makes her. James Corden is playing at, who's also a musician, but he's more of a busker, open mic night kind of musician. Which is funny, because this is the first scene of the movie, is James Corden playing. And in that first scene, the movie kind of leads us to believe all these people have come to see a James Corden concert. And that is not what's going on. No, which I love, because it's James Corden, and he's like, oh, here's my friend, she's also a singer, come on up. And the people don't look that excited, and I thought it was because they were there for a James Corden concert. It's because they're not there for a James Corden concert. They're like, what's this crap we have to put up with now, too? (laughs) Yeah. So she goes on stage, she plays a song, no one is into it except for Dan, who is hammered at this bar after getting fired from his job. In front of his daughter. Yeah, that whole scene was very uncomfortable. Yeah, that was horrifying. This poor daughter. What's his daughter's name? I believe it's Haley Steinfeld. Poor Haley Steinfeld sees her dad in some really awful situations at the age of 14. She does get to be friends with Kira Knightley for a while, though, and Kira Knightley helps her pick out new outfits. That leave less to the imagination. Leave more to the imagination. Yep, that's true. There you go. They do look... Much more like the clothes Kira Knightley is wearing. So you can yeah, see that yeah, influence yeah. in her later wardrobe. Yeah. yeah, I think Kira Knightley sees this child and it's like, time to mold the next me. But also like, this child needs an adult. This, yeah. <laughs> she seems to be struggling, even living with her mom. Yeah. So Dan Ruffalo goes up to Kira Knightley and is like, I want to sign you. I'm a producer. I only look like a mess because I was out partying with a band I signed last night. And she's like, yeah, no. And leaves. And he chases her down. And he's like, okay, I wasn't partying with a band last night. Instead, I got fired and I drank myself to sleep. But you should talk with me and I can get you in the music industry and you can help get me back in the music industry. And while in the first scene, you just see Mark Ruffalo looking drunk and staring at Keir Knightley like he's enjoying the music. When you see it the second time, you actually see him in his head adding music to it. Which I love. Which is a really cool scene. So you see him like building the potential of this singer in his head. Drums show up on stage and are playing themselves. You even add a cello. It's a really cool scene. And like visualizing the work that a producer can do, helping to build out a song and build out someone's sound. I feel like this movie does a good job of showing you how important the music producer is. They're an integral part of creating the art. They're not just the money, like, in a movie. Well... Which also is not true. A lot of movie producers do a lot of work. Yeah, but just, like, that concept of the producer being removed and coming in later and adding notes, stuff like that, is really not true in either world. And in this, you see how the music producer is an artist. Absolutely. And that was part of the inspiration for the movie. John Carney talked about being involved in music in Ireland in the 1990s when there were all these A&R producers trying to effectively find the next U2 and tap into that sound. And he was thinking, okay, so you have those people who are riding high then. What do they look like 20 years later? They look like Mark Ruffalo. Not bad. That, of course, again, is the 13 going on 30 thing. If you know someone's going to wind up looking like Mark Ruffalo, invest now. (laughs) You'll never convince me that that girl learned a lesson, except if I hang out with this chubby kid, he'll grow up into Mark Ruffalo. (laughs) It's the main lesson everyone else took away from the movie, so why would she be any different? Exactly. All right, so Dan and Greta together decide that they will make an album. They'll do it on their own, but they won't rent a studio. They'll just record around New York City. 
This is after he goes to Saul and tries to get a deal. And he's like, I need a real demo tape. Because she just plays alive and doesn't have a demo real and because she's not a professional musician right true and like to be fair she looks because i mean like she just like left her boyfriend and is sleeping on someone else's couch and just got signed by this drunkard like signed in quotation marks she looks kind of sad while she's singing yeah she does not look like a person you'd want to sign or like a person you'd want to put a lot of hope into or like a person who necessarily wants to put a lot of work into producing music for you most death is Probably the most reasonable person in this movie. That's most reasonable. (laughs) Hashtag most reasonable. Sure. So it's also worth noting that in this window, Dan has gone back to his old house to get a suit and argued with his wife or he separated from her, Miriam. And she was complaining that he's not really involved in Haley Steinfeld's life and ultimately tells him, like, if you didn't come back, it wouldn't affect us at all. It's really harsh. It's very harsh. To be fair, he's also kind of interrogating her in an uncomfortable way about whether she's been seeing other men. Yeah. The whole interaction is really uncomfortable. And he storms out, is unhappy. And in this moment, you just think to yourself, it's really weird that Dan and Miriam named their daughter Haley Steinfeld. I mean, it was a choice, but you figure at the time that daughter was born, Haley Steinfeld was not yet a famous person. Like, there was a kid at college a couple years below me, whose name was Edward Cullen. Like, his parents hadn't known that was going to be a thing. Dan and Miriam didn't know Haley Steinfeld was going to be a name that was common. So, anyway, Dan brings together some musicians. <laughs> yes. What's Nick? her name? <laughs> I'm thinking so hard about her name. I really can't remember. Do you want me to look it up? It's yeah. Haley Steinfeld. No, this is fun for me. Don't look it up. I'm, I'm, thinking, I'm not going to talk at all the entire time that I'm recording my podcast. Um, because I'm thinking about her name. Um... So Dan brings together some musicians. Oh, yeah. And they start playing around the city in alleyways, on roofs. He's like hired children and people that CeeLo Green knows. And then a ballet piano teacher. A guy who plays piano for ballet lessons. Yeah, who quits mid-lesson. And I love the touch of all of the girls in the class just saying like, Bye, Mr. Whatever your name is. unfazed by what just happened so it's kind of you know a ragtag band making music on the cutting edge like on rooftops in alleyways at one point he recruits a bunch of children playing ball in an alley to sing backup vocals this is where Keira knightley first meets Haley steinfeld or should i say greta first meets Haley steinfeld and she immediately bonds with her and this is where they go shopping and stuff. And Greta invites Haley Steinfeld to play guitar on one of their tracks. And as part of that, Dan goes, I think this is a good move, tells Miriam what's going on, invites her to come along as well so that she can see what's happening. And this is, in a way, the start of them coming back together. Music and Haley Steinfeld are kind of helping them to bridge their differences. Again. Can a song save your life? Wow. So deep. I think one of the nice things about that is that when Mark Ruffalo really starts to, because he actually is at the beginning initially kind of worried about Haley Steinfeld being able to play. He's never heard her play because he spends no time around her and the mom doesn't really know her either, which is obvious in the way that, I mean, she dresses and acts in a way that I think 
she doesn't feel like she has parents. But it's nice that both of them believing in their kid or like putting some confidence and time into their kid really can bring two people together. That's all I have to say on that. Yeah, so this kind of brings us to point number three, where Dan and Greta start to get closer as people. And you have broken every promise that we made. And I have loved you anyway. And they go on almost a little date where Dan has a headphone splitter hanging from his rearview mirror. And he tells Greta the story of how he and his wife used to listen to music late at night on dates. And then Greta and Dan end up using the splitter, walking around New York, going only to places I feel like people who live in New York wouldn't go, like Times Square, (laughs) sharing headphones and listening to each other's music, specifically their guilty pleasures. There's a line that I like in this moment where Dan talks about the notion that adding music to a moment makes it seem like it has meaning even if it doesn't. Like staring out the window watching stuff with music playing feels like movement with purpose, whereas just staring out the window feels like watching random crap happen. Like, I think the closest version of that to me is that I always like in places where there is music and a muted TV deciding that the music is timed to the commercials and seeing where it works, and it's really fun when it works. I do have to say, they talk about how, like, oh, don't listen to my playlist. It's all, like, my guilty pleasures. And they play, like, Frank Sinatra at one point. Yeah, like, if they this play. Is, if this is real, Starship by Nicki Minaj would be playing right now as you're having your romantic moment. Yeah, it's like when Karen Knightley is like, so this is my favorite song from my favorite movie. And it's As Time Goes By from Casablanca. Oh, yeah. It's just stuff like that. It's all old music, something every music lover would love, so it's not in any way guilty. I was really hoping it would be It's still nice music. It is good music. I was really hoping it would be something like Taylor Swift would come on or something on Mark Ruffalo's iPad or pod. So they have this kind of date moment, but it's crucial that... As we said at the beginning, it doesn't actually turn romantic. They're just two buds. Listen to music. Well, I think, I mean, there is kind of a moment at the end of the date where they come back to James Corden's apartment because that's where Keira Knightley lives now. Yes. Um, And, well, they, like, kind of have a moment where it's like, oh, we're definitely going to have sex right now. And then James Corden pops out, which he's so good at, like, that kind of stuff. And he's just, like, At making out. you feel completely non-romantic. Yeah, exactly. But then it, like, kind of ruins that moment. And I think Mark Larfalo just, like, leaves because there's nothing. Nothing's going to happen on the vaulted bed tonight. Yes. <laughs> but then there's another good moment that kind of, like, leads into... I can't remember if Dave Cole leaves her a message. So, first off, she records... Yeah. A, like, burn song yeah. on her phone. Well, they get super drunk on whiskey. And they watch a video of him oh. performing a song. Or her song. No, no, no. He's receiving an award. Is, he, oh, is that the one he receives no, an award? No, it's when he receives an award for performing a song we saw that she wrote for him. And so they get drunk. She writes a burn song, records it, and sends it to him as a voicemail, which is such an aggressive move. This is how I imagine You Oughta Know happened, but with James Corden there. <laughs> and in that one, there's a, in, when Alanis Morissette, she had a hamburger phone, and she was just singing You Oughta Know into it. And so he then responds with a voicemail saying like, oh yeah, I'm back in New York. Can we meet? I want to see you. 
And she just texted back, okay, asshole. Yeah, so I think that is the end of point three, right? Yeah. I mean, you're the guest. You're in charge of this. Yeah. Nick wrote the points. I, I did not write the points. That's against the narrative. Um, but then the next thing, I mean, then they continue to make the album and finish it out in the wilds of New York. And they, Point number four, there's a big party. And they have a party. Hold on, they're not for me. Hold on. Because everything's coming up. Back at James Corden's teeny tiny house. It's the only place we can do it. <laughs> Is it the only interior set? No, because no, we have no. the inside of Miriam's house, yeah, right. and we have the inside of CeeLo Green's house. And the recording studio. It would be weird for them to do it at Miriam's house. But CeeLo did help them out. But CeeLo Green... That would be an awesome ...would place. have hosted it, I'm sure, because that man is ridiculous in this movie. Yeah, I did appreciate at the party, at this point, Dan, Mark Ruffalo, is trying to cut off his drinking... And he's drinking a Pepsi instead, and he does not like it. And this is a correct opinion, because Pepsi is bad. It's really a Coke ad, if we're going to say anything. Right. As well it should be, because Coke <laughs> is the superior product. So, at the party, you do also see Miriam come with Haley Steinfeld, who, as a player on the album, of course, is invited to the party, where also there are other children. Kind of weird to think about. <laughs> but Miriam comes, and Miriam and Dan are having a good time. They're like not yelling at each other or telling each other that they could leave their daughter's life and everything would stay the same. We also get a moment with like the most fun game ever at a party where you play a, a song that's like really easy to dance to and you have to like not dance. You have to freeze yeah. and whoever manages to not dance the longest wins. And it's a great game. It's a really good game. This is just a moment of fun. And I love that in movies when it's just like, we're just going to show everyone having fun. And there's no, like, there's no dread that something bad is going to happen. Nothing's hanging over anyone's head. It's just a bunch of people having fun playing party games. And then the scene is over. Yeah. It's like the idea that the best scene in Age of Ultron is when the Avengers are just sitting around having a party. And I think that leads into, well, the second part of part four where Kira Knightley has agreed to meet with Adam Levine or Dave Cole. And they hang out. At what I think is the same restaurant that in Hathaway and whoever that terrible guy Adrian is. Adrian Grenier. Yeah. I think that's where they meet for their coffee. Really? Yeah. In The Devil Wears Prada? Yeah. I'm convinced that it's the same restaurant. I did not pay enough attention. Yeah. But anyway, they meet and they talk about what Dave Cole's been doing, how much fame has really hurt him, how big his beard is, because it's enormous. It's so disgusting. It's because he's, like, too dedicated to his art to even be aware of what's happening with his body. And then they go around and listen to each other's albums. And, of course, Kira Knightley's album is amazing. And Dave Cole's is terrible because he's been sucked into the vortex of fame. And then she has to be nice about it. And then he's like, I would throw this album into the ocean. I like a good point she makes where she's like, this song, I wrote it as a ballad and you've turned it into a piece of stadium pop, which is funny because we are talking to Maroon 5 here. Also, he talks about how great it'll be because she's got a songwriting credit on this huge hit now. But she's just like, I wrote this as a gift for you to be sung for you as a slow song. Yeah. She's really unhappy. And I think it's fair because this song does mean a lot to her. So she tells him to go screw himself and leaves. 
But then he invites her to a concert that he's going to have at the Gramercy, where she makes him promise that if they sing the song Lost Stars, that he will sing it the way that she wrote it. And this is Lost Stars, the song from the movie that got nominated for Best Original Song at the Oscars. It is. It is not the best original song from this movie. No. What do you think it is? Um, I'm a really partial to Coming Up Roses, the one with the kids yeah. singing on it. Really That's a nice like song. I like that one, too. Yeah, I do also like Love You Like a Fool. Oh, so good. That's the only song that John Carney wrote for right. this movie by himself he's the the only song yeah the other songs were written by greg alexander and a couple were written by glenn hansard Mm -hmm. who wrote a bunch of the music for once and is the star of once right that leads to really point five we're searching for meaning but are we all lost stars trying to Or Greta goes to the concert and she's there. He's, you know, singing along and he starts out the song Lost Stars, you know, kind of slow ballad. And he recognizes that she's there and I think he, you know, wants to do it well for her. But then kind of the pull of the audience and all these teenage girls like really gets him going and he breaks into stadium pop and she storms away. And he watches her go. She doesn't really storm away, though. She just kind of wistfully walks She drifts away. out. Because she's well, Kira Knightley. She's Keira Knightley. She gets blown she by actually, a night breeze. Yeah, yeah. When you're a stick bug, you kind of crawl more than anything else. <laughs> Someone actually just turned on a fan in the hallway, and she slowly got blown out of the concert venue. And then, and then she joined the circus of P.T. Flea, voiced by John Ratzenberger. <laughs> you need to be stopped. A Bug's Life is good. It is good. It's actually a really good movie. It's very good. It's one of the movies I watched the most when I was a kid. It's Baby's First Seven Samurai. Anyway, she goes for a bike ride, and (laughs) while she's riding, she's thinking, and you can see a slow smile spread across her face. And intercut with this, you see Dan and Miriam on a bench sharing a headphone splitter again. Just like on their first date. Aww. Aww. And that's how the movie ends. Yeah. Until there's an in-credit scene where... Dan and Greta kind of break their record contract and publish the album online. Yeah. I don't know if anything had been signed. I don't think it had been. So there wasn't anything actually illegal, but they get CeeLo Green to tweet about it. So in 24 hours, it gets 10,000 downloads. And they totally upend the music industry with this radical idea of digital music. I think it's more free streaming. Yes. Because in that era, you know, this is when Spotify is emerging. And the yeah. idea of free streaming music is actually changing the music industry. So what do you guys think of the movie? I love this movie. It's one of my favorites. I mean, I really like Mark Ruffalo and Kira Knightley and her Snaggletooth. So obviously it's like a number one for me. Hashtag Snaggletooth. But it's really a, a you know, a top movie for me. But I do want to hear everyone else's thoughts on it. I really did enjoy this one. I think it is definitely happier than once, but it is kind of like I was watching this and I wish I was watching once because of how much I love that movie. And I'm a firm believer that out of the three movies that we've mentioned of the John Carney, the Sing Street once and begin again, this is the worst one. I would agree with that. The Carneyverse. As you could say. That sounds like a circus cinematic universe. We got like one movie about the elephant tamers. Uh, Dumbo. One movie about the acrobats. Dumbo again, I guess. (laughs) Moulin Rouge. 
One movie about the ringmaster. Batman Returns. <laughs> there we go. This is the Carney, the true Carnivorous. I would agree that this is the worst of the Carnivorous films. But it's still very enjoyable. Yeah, it's a nice little movie. I enjoyed watching it. It was a good, like, end of summer movie. Like, my school just started up again last week. This movie has a really nice sense of things coming to an end and a beginning at the same time. Things beginning again. You might say. And I think sort of the outdoor, relaxed, but driven sense of the movie works really nicely this time of year. Do you guys find the relationships in this movie believable? I really do. I do too. I think Greta and Dave makes a lot of sense to me. They're just like childhood friends that maybe they've known each other for a while. They write music together. And I feel like that combination, looking at bands such as ABBA and Fleetwood Mac, can lead to some drama in a relationship. I was going to say that I, I think Dan and Miriam's relationship hits kind of close to home. Like, my godparents are almost exactly like, not minus the music producer part. They got separated. My godfather had a serious bout of alcoholism and was really absent from the kids' lives, but they kind of came together around the kids graduating from university. So I can definitely see that, despite the fact that it's kind of wishful thinking that they would get back together, I think that there is a lot of love there that you can see from the beginning, despite the fact that they fight a lot. I think especially if it is in the context of it's been a year, it's long enough where forgiveness could happen but not too long where they've just been completely out of each other's lives. Yeah. So on our 10-point scale where zero is we don't believe any of it, 10, we find this romance totally believable, where would you guys rate this? Nick? I give it a nine. I mean, as I just said, I know people who've been through this kind of thing. And while, of course, I have to say it's not a 10 because, you know, it's still a movie and Adam Levine is there. I just, I think it's about as real as I could probably see the emotions of a relationship being. We did knock a point off just for Jack Nicholson being there. So I think that's fair. And I'm going to give it a nine too. All right. I'll bow to consensus on this one. What were you getting? I probably would have given it a 10. I think it's very good. I was leaning towards a 10 too, but if we're pulling the Adam Levine card after the Jack Nicholson card, I feel like... Adam Levine is much more plausible to me than Jack Nicholson because he does not look like a serial killer. (laughs) (laughs) That's true. I think I'm going 10. I'm following my gut. I think this is a very realistic portrayal of relationships at moments of quiet crisis. Yeah. So, do you guys think any of these four people in our two relationships would be dateable? I think that... Kira Knightley is one of the most dateable people we've seen in a movie in a while. Like, there's nothing that much of, like, a turnoff for her as a character. She's not, you know, neurotic or uptight or anything. She's just kind of an artist, like a person who wants to make music. Mark Ruffalo is a alcoholic. Who He's has, working on it. Who is working on it. I think once he progress. discovers coke, he'll be good to go. <laughs> that could go... <laughs> Two ways. ways. (laughs) I don't know which one you meant. Once he discovers Coca-Cola, he'll be all right. (laughs) It took me a second to realize that's what you meant. Now it's just like, oh boy, we're going a whole new direction with his problems here. I also like that he is really committed to, for example, being more involved in the life of his daughter, Haley Steinfeld. We see him (laughs) pitching her on starting a band, which 
made me think of Hearts Beat Loud, a really cute movie about a father-daughter band that came out last year. Yeah, I think one problem when we ask this dateable question is if I like the relationship in the movie. Like, I think Dan and Miriam are meant for each other, in a way. So you don't want to break that up. I'm just like, I don't really want to break it up and get in the way of their relationship with their daughter, Haley Steinfeld, as played by Haley Steinfeld. So if you did have to pick one person in this movie to date, who would it be? I already made it clear as soon as he showed up on screen, but the answer is, of course, the dancing drummer. He's a nice guy. There's an unspoken role of a drummer who plays in their band who gets really into the music and is, like, jamming out at the drums, and I was like, him. That is who I am going to date. Because I'm a gold digger at heart, I'm going to choose CeeLo Green. Also, he's really cool in this movie. We should clarify, real-life CeeLo Green, not a great person. No. Yeah, you shouldn't say CeeLo Green. I think you should, fair, we should figure out his, fair. We his figure character out his in this his, film. What is his name? If I accidentally find out the daughter's real name, I will be very upset. I can't know. I literally can't know. If I know, I'm going to cry. I looked. Troublegum. Troublegum. That's an amazing name. I would date Troublegum, for sure. Also, we figured out her name, and I'm really sad. I know. I, but saw, also, I, I read I, it, too. I swear I never heard that name in the entire time. I don't time know if I did movie. either. It definitely came up. Maybe. Who would you date? Uh, I don't know. I would probably date Kira Knightley. Like, she seems really cool. Yeah. It's hard to argue with that. There's a part of me that wants to say Ruffalo. I feel like he's driven in some exciting ways. He seems like if he gets a handle on his life, he could be really good. But he's got to work on that. Again, I think Coca-Cola is the key. But maybe not yet. <laughs> All right. Do you think that Dan and Miriam would stay together? I do think so. I think so. I think they sure. can make it. Yeah. We know that Greta and Dave do not. Which is good. Which is good. Do you guys think that this movie, like Once Before It, should be made into a musical? Based on how I enjoyed Once, I can see it being made into a good musical. I just don't know if it needs to be done because of Once being as big as it was. And if I had to choose, I would rather they put the time and energy into making Sing Street a musical. I would watch the crap out of it, but I also watch Sing Street all the time. Yeah. Yeah. John Carney was actually asked about that in 2014, and he responded, quote, that would be hilarious, (laughs) as an absurd. But he said he also felt the same way about once, and that turned out pretty well. I think it's also worth noting that Carney himself, during the release of this movie, described it as a musical for people who don't like musicals. And when he said that, I think he meant it's purely diegetic, like all of the songs exist within the world of the movie. But he seemed to have a weird attitude about the idea of musical film, which is weird because that's mostly what he makes. He sounds like a really weird guy. Yeah, he does. One of those guys where you just want to be like, you don't seem like an actual bad person. So I'm going to just ignore you and like your movies. Yeah, he just seems rude. I kind of get that vibe. Yeah. It's the Irish. What are you going to (laughs) do? Well, that just about does it for this movie. Next week, we are going to be talking about a great 90s film, one of the awesome romances of the era. We're getting on board the Wegmobile once more. Wag Ted! To talk about Jerry Maguire. I have not seen this movie, but... As soon as I remembered Renee Zellweger was in it, I was very excited. It rules. This is our first post-what-if wag tent, is it not? It is indeed. I'm very excited. It's going to be good stuff. I think you're really going to enjoy it. Uh, Until then, of course, you can follow the show on Facebook and Twitter at Love the Love Pod, and you can email us questions or movie suggestions at lovethelovepod at gmail.com. Make sure to rate, review, and subscribe. Last question. 
Mark, as our guest, you're going to go first. What's the best piece of dating advice you got from Begin Again? Well, step one, get married. Step two, have a child. Step three, separate. And then, through the power of music, start dating again. And that's how you find love. That's a very long game to play. It's the long con. Is that your plan with me, Bart? <laughs> this is horrifying. Please, I don't want kids. <laughs> It'll be our corgi. Our corgi will be a prodigy on the guitar. Will your corgi be named Haley Steinfeld? It has to be now. It's not out of the realm it's of possibility. Not, it's not out of, Haley would be a good dog name. Um, my dating advice is that while music can save a life, it can also save a heart. You're fired. Mark, you're back on the podcast. <laughs> Thank God. My dating advice would be to ride a bicycle. Not that anybody does that as part of dating, but Kira Knightley is doing it at the end of the movie, and I feel good about her future. So that's what I'm putting out there. Well, there you go. Until next time, I'm Gay. And I'm a ginger. So between the two of us, we know everything there is to know about romance. Bye! Bye.